Good morning, everybody. A lot of guests here, visitors. Thank you so much for joining us in worship this morning. It just means a lot that you would come to Open Door to worship. And um, we're studying in Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you'll find Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3. This is the time of the year where we're asked to vote on our lawmakers. And so in a few weeks, you, you'll be asked to uh, make your votes. And I hope you will see that as an important Christian responsibility as well. And if you're voting this year, just consider, you know, which politicians are advocating the most biblical principles. That's usually what guides me in, in my voting. Now, at the same time, you're going to hear a lot of these lawmakers, um, politicians make promises to you, right? And uh, often they don't keep their promises. I mean, politics these days seems like a litany of broken promises. At some point in time, I wish we could take all the promises that these politicians make, and if they're elected after a year, just sit them down and say, okay, here's all the things you promised. Here's what you've done. Now, what's the deal with the rest? You know, maybe we get to beat them if they don't, you know, keep their promises. I don't know. But, uh, but it's, just, it's just obvious that politicians cannot guarantee their promises. Well, not only politicians, right? We've all experienced broken promises, have we not? Some of you can look back to your childhood and there were some promises made to you that your parents broke. You may carry some of those scars today. Some of you have failed marriages. There were promises that were made to you or you made, and those promises weren't kept. Good friends made promises. They weren't kept. Someone who has an authority over you, a boss or, or, or a leader, and they made, they made a promise to you. Our lives are filled with broken promises. We bear the marks of those broken promises. What does that have to do about Galatians? Well, Galatians is about the gospel. And I've been trying to encourage you all to write down a definition of what the gospel is. Because I want you to understand the gospel and I want you to be able to share with someone else what the gospel is. Because the gospel is about a promise. That God made it to you. And if you will come to him by faith, he'll keep his promise. God guarantees his promise through us, to us because of the faithfulness of his son, Jesus. And I want to show you clearly about that today from Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to pick up in verse 15. I'm going to need for you this morning to imagine that you're on a jury, okay? So we're in a court of law, and you're a part of the jury. And, and you have a very difficult um, obligation to determine if a person is guilty, if they're condemned, or if they're free. And how do you know? How do you know when you would say this person is condemned? When would you say, no, this person is free? So pay attention as we begin. Brothers and sisters, I am using a human illustration. 
No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Okay, let me catch you up to speed. The Apostle Paul went and planted some churches in an area called Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey, okay? These churches were primarily filled with Gentiles, not Jews. Paul gave to them the gospel of God's grace that saves, that salvation comes through everything that Christ did, nothing that you do. It is by grace that you're saved through faith. Many of the Galatians believed. They experienced the work of the Spirit of God in their life. Churches were formed, and Paul went back praising God, but back in Antioch, where he was serving, he began to hear rumors that some bad teachers had gone all the way up to Galatia and began to influence these new Gentile believers. And they were telling them things like, listen, yes, you got to believe in Jesus, but you can't have a right relationship with God just simply by believing. There's things you have to do. As a matter of fact, we have books of the scriptures that tell us what we must do in order to be made right with God. In your Bible, that would begin around Exodus 20, and it would continue all the way on to the end of Deuteronomy. We call it the law. And these bad teachers were saying, if you don't obey the law, you cannot be right with God. How could you consider yourself a righteous person unless you're obedient? You got to get circumcised. You got to go on a special diet. You got to follow Jewish traditions. And... These Galatian believers began to be influenced by these false teachers. And when Paul heard this, he was very upset. And so he challenged them. Is it true that there's something you have to do in order to have a right relationship with God? And let me ask you that question. Can you be right with God only by belief? Or is there something you must do in order to be right with God? And my friends, the answer to that question has everlasting significance. If you must obey the works of the law in order to be saved, are you really saved? And so Paul writes this, this letter and he's explaining the gospel of God's grace that, that to turn away from this gospel would be to desert the grace of God. It would be to nullify grace. If, if you are to add any type of works to your salvation, then you're basically saying that Christ didn't die in a way that was sufficient for you. As a matter of fact, it would destroy the gospel if you believed that there's something that you have to do in order to be right with God. And so Paul is going to have to explain to the Galatians and to us what is the purpose of the law. And is it necessary for us to obey the law in order to be just or right with God? And so in Galatians chapter 2, he, he reminds us that it is the gospel of grace that saves us by faith and not by works. You are saved 
by faith in what Christ has accomplished and not by works. In chapter 3, where we are today, he's going to show us that the gospel of grace saves us by promise and not by law. And then in chapter 4, we're going to see, and I hope you keep coming as we study this, the gospel of grace saves us to be sons and not slaves. Faith, not works. Promise, not law. Sons and not slaves. And so he is going to tell us first that the grace of God came to us way before the law was given to Moses. And this is how he says it, brothers and sisters, because Paul considers these Galatians to be a part of his spiritual family. Brothers and sisters, he says, I'm going to use a human illustration for you to understand that. And here it is. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So here's what you need to imagine. Uh, a parent or, or a mom and dad, they sit down and write their will and testament out to their children. And they, they do so in order to leave them their inheritance. And Kay and I did this a few years back. We got a lawyer. We wanted to make it official. And we sat down with the lawyer and we said, we need a will for our kids. And the lawyer said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, we'll just give them everything and, and divide it up equally. And, and, and that's it. That's it. Just write it up and validate it. And that cost me $3,000, by the way. And uh, that was easy money for, for, for the lawyer. Uh, and, and then we said to the kids, okay, we have a will now. They've been bugging us about it. If we die, you get everything. Don't expect too much. And this is what it is. But, but here's the thing. That will was validated, right? It became a legal contract. A promise was made. Our promise. That was ratified. You receive our inheritance. Now, if any of you were to come afterwards and say to my children, no, 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 that's not enough. Your parents just can't promise you everything and you get all their inheritance just because they said so. No, 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 no. There's other things that have to be added to this. You can't just receive this freely. No, the will is binding. No matter what someone might come later and say, and this is exactly the argument that Paul is making. Once validated, a human will cannot be altered by another person or an event. And if a human will is secured by way of the promise, how much more is a promise that God makes to you? How much greater is a promise that the Almighty makes to you. Are God's promises not binding? And the problem of this was because these bad teachers were saying to the Galatians, you see, now there's more that you got to do. You've got to obey the works of the law in order to be made right with God. And so Paul's making this argument, uh-uh, you don't understand. The promise came before the law, verse 16. And by the way, as we're studying today, make sure you take note of every time you see the word promise, you'll see it a half a dozen times or more. Here we go. Verse 16. Now the promise, the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, pay attention. That's a singular seed, one seed. Because Paul clarifies, he says he does not say, and to his seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, 
who is Christ. Okay, now what's he doing? We've got to go all the way back to uh, the passage of Scripture that Patricia read so beautifully today, Genesis 17. Because here is Abram. And God made this promise to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you the father of a world full of people. You're going to have children spread out everywhere. And I'm going to give them my covenant blessing. And I'm going to be their God. And, and, and then God made that promise to Abram. And Abram believed. In Genesis 15, Abram believed. And God declared him saved. Abram believed. God declared him justified. It was by faith in the promise of the seed that would come out of Abram that he would receive salvation. Let me say that again. It was Abraham's faith in God's promise of the seed that would come from him that would be his salvation or his savior. And what Paul is doing here is he's being very clear because if you go back to Genesis 17, and I will take you there, when God made this covenant, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, singular, your son or your seed. And I will give to you and to your one offspring, your seed, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, not just a temporary possession, but an everlasting possession. And I will be there. God, now what is he doing? All right, he's saying this. You have a promise given to Abraham that a singular seed would come from him. And all of the promises that I will give to you uh, people and possessions and protection and your preservation will all be ratified through the one seed. He was not talking about the entire nation of Israel, seeds, plural. He was talking about the one that would come from Abraham, whom you and I know as Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed. And if you have any hope in being saved, then you better place your faith in the one promised seed and in that seed alone. This was the seed, by the way. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins in the garden. Eve sins. And now a holy God has to curse Eve and then curse Adam and curse all of his creation because now death has entered. And as he is cursing Eve, and as a result of her sin, she would painfully rear, produce and rear children. He, he makes this promise to, to Eve and says, now from your seed, from your seed will come someone whom Satan will bruise. Satan will bruise his heel, but this seed will crush Satan's head. That, that promised seed at the very beginning of our Bibles is the very same seed that was promised to Abram, which is now promised to us, and that is Jesus Christ. And so it is faith in Christ alone, you see, that brings all of us into this family of God. It is Christ that brings solidarity to his church. He says in verse 17, now my point is this, all right, now you, you're the jury. And imagine in the jury, one lawyer comes up and says, you got to declare this person free. 
You cannot condemn this person. But another lawyer stands up and says, oh, no, 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 no. This person is guilty. And there is a whole list, a whole list of laws that this person has broken. You must declare this person guilty and condemned. And you got to decide, free or guilty. Now Paul says this. Here's my point. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Remember, this is all about a promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. And God's promises are unchanging. So God makes this promise to Abraham. 430 years later, Moses leading the children, out of, children of Israel out of Egypt, find their way to Mount Sinai. It's time for Moses to go up the mountain and receive the law. Moses receives the law, which has 600 stipulations as to what Israel must do in order to be holy. And Moses brings this law down to Israel. And so now the question is, is that law binding for your salvation? Must you obey the law in order to be right with God? And the false teachers were saying absolutely yes. You have to not only have faith, you got to be obedient. You must do these things if you're going to be right with God. And so Paul says, okay, we've got a problem because God had already made a promise 430 years earlier. So is that now invalidated? Because there was absolutely nothing that Abram did to be saved. He just believed in the promised seed. Just like today, you need to consider that promised seed to be your only hope to have a right relationship with God. If your inheritance is based on the law, Paul says, then obviously you can throw away God's promise. Or you can just say God broke his promise because Abraham didn't do anything. He just placed faith in the promised seed. And God's promises are unchanging. You see, the law demands perfect obedience. You can't just obey a little. The law was given to reveal the holiness of God. If you want to be holy, you have to fulfill the law perfectly. The law demands, do this perfectly and you will be holy. The promise says, receive the gift of grace by faith and I will make you holy. And there is a world of difference between those two. Will you be holy because you are good enough? Obedient enough? Righteous enough? Or will you be holy because God will make you holy by granting you the righteousness of the seed, his son, our savior? Yes, you see, we've got a dilemma. The dilemma is once the law came, did it invalidate the promise? How many of you know of the Statue of Liberty? Raise your hand. And how many of you have seen it? Raise your hand. You seen it? It's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? It's New York Harbor, 
and is rising out of the water is this, this beautiful statue's gift from France, like one of the very few things we can appreciate France for. I'm just kidding, kind of. And, 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 and in, in this, this, is, this Lady Liberty, and she's holding a torch, and she's got this tablet, and there's a, a, a poem, part of a poem inscripted there uh, on the base of the statue, and, and, and it says, um, you know, uh, bring me your tired and bring me your poor and bring me your huddled masses that they might breathe free. That's, a, that's an important statement. Like, come, anybody who wants to come from outside of this nation into this nation, that, that they might want to breathe freedom. Come. And, and, uh, and so got Lady Liberty with the torch. And then she's holding a tablet. And on the tablet is inscribed July 4th, 1776, right? So this is a beautiful thing. And now imagine, okay, imagine that we decide to change that. And we tear down uh, the statue of Lady, Lady Liberty. We, we, we build this statue of this woman, and she's holding chains. And she says, okay, beginning today, if you come to this country, then you will be enslaved and you will once again be servants of Great Britain and you will have to obey the king and pay him uh, uh, taxes. And, and, and this is now the new law. And then what do we do? Well, what we would do is just say, ah, I don't care that, that you have put up this new statue and, and you're trying to tell me that, that I'm enslaved again, uh, once again, because remember the July 4th, 1776. <laughs> That promise was made that anybody who is a part of this country can breathe freely. God permit that to continue, that we can breathe freely. And so the earlier promise cannot be broken even by a later law. And the same thing goes with the promise that God made to Abraham. I am going to make you the father of a great nation. You will have people, possessions. You, you will be prosperous. I will protect you. The, the law does not change that. God's promises remain true. The question is, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose a faith where you have to be good enough to God? Here's your list. Do these things. Yeah, you don't do these things, God's just out to get you. I mean, my, my Roman Catholic blood boils when I read Galatians because that's what my family used to believe. Yeah, of course you believe in Jesus, but then you've got to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. God's not going to be happy with you unless. You want to be holy? This is what it is. And so you, you either have to choose law or liberty. You either have to choose freedom or bondage. And, and if you claim the inheritance that God had promised Abraham, then the only way you can receive it is to be like Abraham and believe, period. And that will set you free because you're not good enough. You're not even close to being good enough for God to consider you holy. And if you're not good enough and no one else is, you better find someone who was good enough. And Paul calls that person the seed. Seed. 
God's grace came to us way before God's law was there to reveal our sin. And God's grace was revealed by a mediator who was greater, by the way, than a person by the name of Moses. Verse 19. Why then was the law given? Right? That would make sense. So you're in the jury and you're like, okay, the promise of this person's freedom was been given, but now it's been revealed to me that this person's broken all these laws. So now what do I do? How, do I condemn this person or not? Like, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that's the question Paul asks. What is the reason for the law? And he answers the question by saying, it was added for the sake of transgressions. That's a word for sin. The law was added because of your sins. And it was added until, the law was given until the seed, now Paul is very clear who he's referring to, capital S seed, that's Jesus Christ, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect uh, through angels and by way of a means of a mediator. And now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. I don't I understand all of this. All right, here's what Paul's doing. First, he says, if the promise comes by faith alone in the seed, what is the purpose of the law? Paul says, it's clear. There's two reasons for the law. The law restrains and the law reveals. Remember that. The law restrains and the law reveals. The law restrains your wickedness. It's a good thing to have laws. Like, it's very good for you that there are speed limit laws because I drive. It's really good for you that there are speed limits. And, and it's really good for you that there's a law that says you, you cannot text when you drive. That's good for you because of me. And, and my wife reminds me, you're breaking the law right now. And I hate it when she says that. I said, I'm just looking. I'm like, no, you're, you're, you're. that's texting. You, you just look at it, it's still text. The part of the, it's part of the whole texting procedure. Someone texts and the other person looks at the text. You're violating the law by looking. And I'm like, you're such a law biter, you know. The law is good in that it knows how unlawful we are. It restrains our wickedness. But the law is better because it reveals our wickedness. You see, a true understanding of the law can only lead you to the point where you say to God, I am not good enough. There is nothing that I can offer you. Absolutely nothing. The law reveals my lawlessness, my unrighteousness. I come to God empty-handed. And that is a part of the gospel. Because how, would, how could I come to God humbly and in need of grace if I thought in any way I was good enough to have a right relationship with God? So it restrains me, but it also reveals who I really am. And, and this law was given to Moses. I'll take you back to Exodus 20. So um, Moses, he leads Israel out of Egypt and they, they cross the Red Sea. And then there they are, there, there they are at, the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And, um, and God says to Moses, tell the children of Israel, prepare themselves and take a step back because I'm coming down the mountain. And when I come down the mountain, my glory will be revealed 
with thunder and with fire. And Moses, I need you to come up and meet me. And, and Moses going up to meet the Lord and in the thunder and the fire, the children of Israel are like, I don't want anything to do with this. They were running away. You know why? Because they were getting close to the holiness of God. And it was revealing their unholiness. And they were like, I don't want any part of this. The law was revealing something to them. And so Moses goes up, and as he goes up, he's in the presence of the glory of God, and the law is given to him mediated by angels. Heavenly hosts were there on the mountain. Heaven came down to meet Moses. Acts chapter 2, Hebrews as well, talks about how angels mediate the, the law. And so Moses comes down from what the angels had mediated, and he has this law. And, and the Israelites were absolutely terrified. And so Moses becomes this, this good mediator. The problem was Israel was not ready to receive it. And Israel utterly failed in fulfilling the law. Moses, the faithful mediator, uh, uh, was then in this relationship between God and Israel and Israel utterly failed to keep the covenant. So then what needed to happen? A better mediator had to come. This mediator, this again, the mediator is the person between God and a people. So someone better than Moses had to come to mediate between sinful people and a holy God. And the only person that God knew that could effectively mediate this relationship was the seed or his son, who, by the way, is God because God is one. God sent himself to be the mediator, clothed with humanity, the son of God, who is God because God is one. Isn't that amazing? God himself became the mediator. And through Christ, we can know God because we know the mediator. To know Jesus is to know God, is to know the one who's going to bring you to God and have a right relationship with him. So Paul says, is the law therefore contrary to the promise? No, absolutely not. The law just had a different purpose. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. So Paul says, okay, listen, jury, you got to make a decision here. If God gave you the law so that you would obey it and be declared righteous, then you just need to know that the only way to be righteous is to obey the law. And to do that is to condemn you. So if I'm on the jury and you come and you stand before me and the lawyer says, this person thinks they're good enough. And yet here's all the laws that they have violated. Make a decision. I say he's condemned. He's damned. He thinks he's good enough. It's obvious. He's violated these laws and many, many more. He's condemned. If the lawyer comes to me and says, yeah, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, I know he's violated the law, but he's actually trying to claim a promise that was made that cannot be changed. And the promise is you are free because you believe 
and someone who is willing to be condemned for you. Yeah, you're condemned. And there's no way out. But what if someone comes and says, I'll be condemned for you? Just believe. You see, if the law had been granted to save you, then righteousness can only come on the basis of the law. But see, that's not the case. Rather, the scripture is good because it imprisons everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Not on your works. The promise is given on the basis of anyone who places saving faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Now you know why in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus made this statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That's a strong word from the Lord. Jesus, here he is, Jesus on earth, and he says, if you think you're righteous, I'm not here for you. You think you're good enough? I haven't come to call you to follow me. But if you're broken, you're tired, you know your sin, you feel the weight of your sin every day, Come follow me. I'll set you free. The scripture, it helps us, right? Because the scripture reveals the power of sin. You have to know how powerful sin is. Sin, it, it enslaves you. It shackles you. Literally what Paul is saying is that sin imprisons us. It fences us in and there's no way out. I am. Um, I have the opportunity to, to, as part of my teaching obligation, to teach prisoners at a um, very secured uh, prison in, uh, in North Carolina. And so I, I have to go through this process every week in order to go and teach these prisoners. And I have to make sure there's no weapons and, and nothing on me. And I, and, I, and I go through this secure door and all these metal detectors and I get patted down and then and then I show them my ID, and then what happens is they click this button, and a door opens, and I walk into the prison yard. And this happens to me every time. When I walk into the prison yard, I look, and all I see is these tall fences, multiple, multiple fences. And on top of the fences are these rows and rows of these razor wire. And when you're, you, when you're in there and you look around, you realize, I'm, I'm, I'm imprisoned here. I'm fenced in by this. There's no way I can get out. Not unless... I'm let out. And, and, and this is exactly what Paul is trying to say. There's a power of sin that, that imprisons you. You're fenced in by it. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that you would finally get to the place where you realize that, that I can only come to God empty-handed, pleading for his mercy for my salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for address. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. 
foul I am, and to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I will die. The law can only reveal how helpless we are. But it is God's grace, which comes by faith in Christ, that will unite us as children of God. Verse 23. This is the end, the conclusion of Paul's argument here. Before this faith came, now we're talking about before Jesus, right? He's using faith as a reference to Christ. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith, that's Jesus, was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So, so, so uh, sin has this power, and, and, and it has the power to en- enslave us, imprison us. And the law reveals that we are prisoners because we can't fulfill the law. And so the law is necessary that it would condemn a person. It would force a person to realize we're simply not good enough to be saved. The, the law reveals the necessity that to be made right with God, we have to come to God by faith and faith in Christ alone. But now, since Christ has come, you see, we don't have to be imprisoned anymore by the law. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. Christ fulfills the law perfectly for us. We believe in him. We're free from the guardian. In other words, we have matured beyond it. So another, another way to, to think about this is, is, is that see the law as being like a, a very harsh elementary school teacher who's allowed to have a paddle and to paddle her students. Okay, I'll, I'll reveal my age. I was paddled in elementary school. Is anybody else? Okay, amen. Yes, got to bring that back. So now here, here's, how, this is how it worked with me. Like here's this is me like, you know, being the old man saying how much more difficult my childhood was than yours. All right, so, uh, so every year uh, I had to ride the bus to school in Michigan in like very cold conditions. So yeah, give, you know, give me some props. But, but the, on the first day of class, every year, the first day of class, my dad would drive me to school and he would always do the very same thing. He would drive me to school, park the car, say, let's go. And we would go to the principal's office he would say, he would introduce himself to the principal. Hi, I'm Joe Milioni. I just need a minute of your time. This is my son, Dwayne. And, and I want you to know that you have, you have my full uh, right and um, uh, uh, okay to beat my son whenever he violates the laws of this school. And, and you can spank him, you can beat him on one condition, and that's that you call me first, let me know what he did, so that when he gets home, I'll do it to him again. Every year, every year he would do that. And, and yeah, I think we should reinstitute some of that. Um, but here, here's what he was doing. He basically, my elementary principal 
became my guardian. He became my guardian. And in my immaturity, the guardian had the ability to whip me. And that restrained me until I finally grew up and, and realized it's not worth it. And I, and I became free from, from the guardian. And, 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 and as a Christian, I realized that the law is good even when it whips me. What it reveals in my heart, Martin Luther said, with its whippings, the law draws us to Christ. You must allow me to be this bold to you. You must allow me to tell you you are condemned if you think you're good enough to have a right relationship with God. Let the law whip you, force you to come to Christ empty-handed so that by faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone, you will claim the promise. And that promise is that you will have everlasting life and you will receive the full inheritance that God offers his son because you are now a son or a daughter of God. Through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And, and listen, if you claim that promise, then you can claim every other promise that God has made to you. Because when God makes a promise, it's unbreaking and it's unending. And I think too often, you see, friends, you fail to claim the promises of God. You live as if the promises of God are not for you. So we're going to pray in a minute. And one of the things I want you to do is claim the promises of God. But you have to begin here. You have to claim the promise that salvation comes only by what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross and by way of the resurrection. Nothing you offer God. And when you come to God by faith in what Jesus has done, and you confess that, and you believe that, there is a promise that you will become a child of God forever. Amen? Forever. That's step one. Don't let anybody ever tell you that there's something you have to do to be saved. Christ has done it. He's done it. But now, what about the other promises? Because there are so many. Why not claim them? God made promises to us for a reason. And his promises are always yes and amen. They can't be broken. So when, when God promises his presence, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But when you feel lonely or isolated, why don't you claim the promise? Claim the promise. When you feel like you just need protection. God has promised, I will be your shield. Claim the promise. When you lack power or lack strength, why don't you claim the promise? I will strengthen you. Isaiah 41, I'll strengthen you. 
When, when you are just lacking direction, claim the promise. I am your good shepherd. I will lead you. I will lead you to the paths of righteousness. When you're tired, weary, claim the promise. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And when you know that you continue to sin and struggle with sin, claim the promise of forgiveness and mercy. God said, my mercies are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. And friends, when you need love, claim the promise. Because the Bible says, Jeremiah 31, 3, I will love you with an everlasting love. Pray with me. Father, all of your promises, according to your word, are yes and amen. And for those of us who have first have claimed the promise of Christ, the seed, as our Savior, that he was good enough to save us, nothing we've done. Now, Father, we can claim these other promises. I pray that we would. For presence, protection, strength, rest, mercy, and love. Father, forgive us for not claiming these promises more regularly, but we do today. We do today. And now send us out that we might share with others the goodness of God and all the promises that are in store for anyone who would place their faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.